The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And we have this time now to reflect on different aspects of the Buddhist teaching. And uh, as you know, the primary change agent for those of us who feel like we've been bumping our heads up against life, having that wholesome desire to be more free, to be more alive, to be more skillful, to be more peaceful, but somehow bumping back into the old same old, same old, you know, where we're tight, we're stressed, we're reactive, we're hurting. And so the Buddha identified, you know, like a doctor might identify diagnosis of some illness. The Buddha, you know, as a spiritual teacher and just through his own process of paying attention to his mind, you know, he diagnosed the issue at hand as he saw it, which was this chronic misperceiving or misunderstanding of our experience. Taking this experience, our subjective experience, to be something more than what it is or different than what it is. And because of that misunderstanding, we live our life and we make choices based on that misunderstanding. And, and then, consequently, those choices that we've made don't really work very well. <laughs> You know, it's, they're clunky and they're counterproductive and they set a lot of other reverberations in motion that burden our heart. But it's because we're imagining this experience, my subjective experience, is something more than what it is or different than what it is. So then the cure, you know, like the Buddha, the obvious cure then is, well, to correct the chronic habit of misunderstanding, misperceiving, we need to cultivate clear seeing. You know, the opposite of misperceiving, we need to start seeing things as they are. So this whole big deal about awareness, mindful awareness, present moment awareness, you know, we call it different things, is just that. It's this training we humans take up to go from perceiving, relating based on how we've been conditioned or habit to learning to be present in a clearer, simpler, non-distorted way. And it's hard. But, you know, one thing I like to do, just to give us an example, because even our visual experience uh, is very seductive. But you can look at anything. You can look at a meditation cushion, or those of you at home, maybe don't look at the screen, but look at something in your room. And you can go to that sort of conditioned way of perceiving your visual experience, like the mind naturally, quickly identifies or perceives or recognizes the different objects in your visual field. And then it has unavoidably an opinion, you know, whether it says it in words or not, it's like, I like that object, I don't even know what that object is, that object disgusts me, you know, it's, 
And that's the usual way of perceiving. The mind is recognizing experience, in this case the visual experience, based on its habits, you know, how what it's noticed in the past, kind of, we would say, in some senses, consensual reality, because together we sort of decided, you know, these are sitting cushions and they look like this and are shaped like that. But we can shift, right, to a more simple way of relating to the visual experience that we're having. That isn't, the visual experience doesn't have to be dominated by the meaning the perceiving mind projects onto our visual experience. Can't we, in a sense, relax as we're noticing visual experience? So there's something more profoundly simple, or you could even say raw, or um, not constructed, less constructed. Seeing being known, you could you could call it, you know, visual experience being known, not what I'm seeing, but just seeing is happening. Seeing is being known. And and sometimes we will say it this way. We'll say we, we go from an object focus, like my mind is really seemingly dependent on what objects are being seen, to there are objects being seen. So from the object orientation to the knowing orientation, like seeing is being known. That's what's relevant. Not what's being seen, but there is seeing, just like there is hearing being known. And there is the feeling of sensation being known. And it's not like we become dumb and I can't sense the particulars of a sensation or a visual experience or auditory experience. But in a way, the mind is training, right? It's a training to be more interested in that it's being known. And remember, I mentioned at the very beginning of the guided sit that there's this integrity in the way, I think it's not just in Buddhism, I think it's, it just should be, um, it's something we can trust that the way we operate in the world should be in line, in alignment with our deepest value. So if we really value non-hate, not hating, then when we're relating to all the things that disturb us, we should practice not hating, right? I mean, if we really think kindness is a universal value that I can really trust and align with, then we practice relating with kindness all the time. It's like we wouldn't use hating to get to kindness. That doesn't make sense. Or I wouldn't use something that's really deeply agitating to get to a peaceful state. So the means, getting really agitated, doesn't lead to the goal of peace. What leads to the goal of peace is to practice being peaceful with the conditions that are here. If I want to be peaceful no matter the conditions, or kind no matter the conditions, or present no matter the conditions, then then it makes a lot of sense that the way I'll train myself for that goal is to practice being kind and clear and uh, present, <laughs> right, with uh, 
with every moment because that will lead to being kind and present and wise and with all experience so that the practice is in alignment with the goal. Now, it's okay if you don't really know what your heart aspires to, what your deepest wishes or how you, what intuition you have about, you know, a word like freedom or, or release or, but it's useful to get interested. Like, well, what do we want in life? What do we aspire to? Because we might say, you know, reflexively, well, I just want a safe home and some good friends. But, and that's totally reasonable to want those things. I want those things. But it doesn't take much reflection to be, to realize, yeah, but whatever I might get, it's going to be uncertain because things change and homes burn down or you die and you lose your home anyway or friends come and go and you die and they, you lose those friendships anyway. So what does a human being do with this life? Is it, is there something to aspire to beyond having nice experiences until I don't? And I'm into having a nice home and good friends and so I'm not putting any of that down. I'm just wondering if we can open to a higher aspiration. And then if we might be open to that, like does equanimity, does that balance that I've been talking about, that possibility of my heart, this heart, not squeezing, not getting tight, no matter the conditions, including the dying process or losing a good friend or winning the lottery. I hear it's getting close to a billion dollars again, one of them, you know. Well, that would change things. <laughs> Probably make us miserable. <laughs> but it's interesting how, you know, we, we unconsciously have a lot of aspirations. Like, God, it would be nice to have enough money or be young, have a young body again or, you know, whatever, you know, we have. But we haven't been that thoughtful. We almost feel embarrassed to sort of ask that question in a conscious way, like, what, what, do, what does this heart, mind, me, what do I really, really want? What, how, you know, when I'm really reflective, what might really lead to a lasting, resonant, unconditioned happiness, not a happiness that comes and goes, and the Buddha, you know, when he examined his own life or his own mind and, and got to know a lot of the different flavors of happiness, he found that the deepest happiness is peace. Peace, no matter the conditions or the, no matter the circumstances. That when we realize that beautiful ease of heart, peace, balance of the mind, but that balance, that peace, that ease, there's nothing that can come and go, like a painful memory or some exciting thing, or, that would disturb it, 
Now, I'm not saying that like that's easy, or and I'm not saying that I have that kind of unconditioned balance, right? But I'm I'm wondering, is that an interesting aspiration for you and for me? Like, are we interested? Like, would that be nice? Would you trust that? Not, would you trust that as an aspiration? Like, do you have any doubts about that as an aspiration? Is that a wholesome, beautiful, worthy aspiration for us humans? To aspire to have a mind, a heart, a life that remains wide open in the sense of being really not afraid of being sensitive, not afraid of feeling what we feel, and, or another way to say that, not afraid of being human, you know, in the way we've been conditioned. But at the same time, not sort of not afraid of that exposure. There's a great line that you might have heard this because the Dalai Lama often repeats it, and it's a teaching from a, a Buddhist monk from the ninth century, so a long time ago, over a thousand years ago, in India. And his name was Shantideva. He's quite famous. And he wrote a couple of famous texts. And uh, in one of them, and this is the little teaching that the Dalai Lama often repeats. You know, he paraphrases it in different ways, and I'm going to paraphrase it. And, And it's very simple, but it's profoundly deep, too. Like, if we could use this as a teaching to guide us, along the way. So, whenever something happens, good or bad, right, which is all the time, stuff's happening all the time. Mark's talking right now and you're hearing it, So, or your knee hurts or whatever. So stuff is happening all the time. So when stuff happens, if there's something you can, if there's a way to respond that's skillful, something to do, about the particular conditions of the moment, well then go ahead and do it. And if, as you go about your day, and something happens, and there's no response needed, then there's no response needed. So far, so good? (laughs) Makes a lot of sense. Like, if there's something to do, do it. If there's nothing that needs to be done, there's nothing that needs to be done. And then the last part of the teaching is, in either case, whether in a given moment there's some response that would be appropriate or useful, or there's no response, particular response needed, why be tight? Why be upset? Why be have a heavy heart? So you're like, let's just say something provocative. We found out we've got a bad illness. You know, when my partner... Just she's been out at our retreat center, and she got Lyme's disease because she was. We planted a bunch of a uh, couple hundred native trees and bushes this last spring, and because it's been so dry, different volunteers have had to traipse through the high grass and brush to water all the trees and bushes that we planted. And uh, there are ticks out there, and some of them have Lyme's disease. And Wynn was careful, but she still got it. So. Um, you know, and you can imagine, like, especially these days, you know, luckily she caught it early, she'll be probably fine, but, you know, you hear, we hear all of us, I think, horror stories about Lyme's disease, so it's like, oh no. 
So we imagine like when that kind of thing happens, if there's something you can do, if there's something you need to do to take care of yourself, well, you do that. You call the doctor, you get your antibiotics, you track things carefully, you get the antibody test. A couple months later, you get the antibody test again, do a little internet research, talk to friends who've had Lyme's disease. You know, if there's something to do, you do it. But when in moments there's nothing to do about the Lyme's disease, then there's nothing to do about the Lyme's disease. In either case, whether it's a moment where you can conceive of something you can do that would be good to do, or it's a moment where there doesn't seem to be anything important to do about it, why be tight? Why imagine, why construct some story about my life situation that requires my heart to be heavy? tight. Why? Does that help me? Does it help anybody? No. And that's really gets, I find that little teaching from Shantideva a really useful way to understand this deeper sense of balance or equanimity. Because it really comes, it's not about indifference or about being disconnected or not caring. It's really like I'm going to do what needs to be done, but I'm not going to burden myself with fear or with hope even. You know, it's like when and I are going to go look at a property tomorrow up to uh, on the south shore of Lake Superior. It's not on the lake, but it's close. And uh, we've been thinking, you know, we're both getting up there in age and thinking, well, it might be nice to have a place to retire. And we don't have to be in the city all the time. And uh, and so, you know, you could get hope. I mean, it's just a tiny little place. You can't afford anything special. But, you know, it's in a beautiful place. And, uh, and so you can get excited, of course. But it's sort of like, uh, well, if there's something to do, like calling the real estate agent and making an appointment to go see the place and driving three hours and driving back the same day. You know, if there's something to do, do it. If there's nothing to do, if nothing is showing up in our price range and the places we're interested in, then there's nothing to do. But why get tight? Why get tight around hope? Oh, because that doesn't make it happen anymore. Getting tight does not facilitate the reality of having an appropriate place that serves our needs, right? It just makes the body and mind tight. That's what tightness does. You know, that's what getting identified with the hope, because the hope is something like that promise. If this turns out to be the right place, then I'll be happy. But I'm not happy now because I don't have it. Right? So that's the squeeze. We turned our current situation into not happy because this promise of this making me happy means I can't be happy now. Because if I'm happy now, how can that make me happy? I'm already happy. So it, it kind of, uh, it's interesting, it works both in how we tend to relate to painful, fearful possibilities and how we relate to hopeful, pleasant possibilities in our life. We've got one move, make the heart tight, <laughs> create a burden, and get identified with it. And when we open it up for discussion, it would be nice you might have your own examples of hope and fear. There's a famous story from 
another Buddhist saint, this one from Tibet, some of you have heard of Milarepa, I think maybe 13th century, so again, a long time ago. And uh, But he's one of the, if not the most uh, important patron saints of Tibetan Buddhism. Lots of fun, wonderful stories about Milarepa, including this one, um, where he was, uh, he had, you know, sitting in the proverbial cave in the Himalaya mountains, and uh, of course, what shows up when we're meditating and there's not much going on? All of the unfinished business, right? All of our unresolved pain and you know, shame and all those patterns that maybe we can keep buried when we're busy in life, but then you got a lot of quiet and space because you're in a cave in the side of a mountain, you know, that, that stuff shows up. And, you know, Tibetan Buddhism is very uh, colorful and ornate. And uh, so they have all kinds of stories about, you know, the very sort of uh, fun stories about how they talk about the mind in terms of other deities, other sort of, they externalize it, right, I guess. And so one way is like he learned to subjugate all the demons of his mind by just skillful means, just being present, developing a lot of wisdom and a lot of compassion. And uh, so then his mind started to manifest as these sort of uh, energies called the kinis, that generally they're thought of as feminine, and they would sing to him. You're basically doing great. But the particular way, and they, they'd sing kind of wisdom teachings, and of course it's, it's just meant to be different aspects of his own mind, right? That they, like I said, t- talk about these things in very beautiful, colorful ways. And so the Dakinis rise and they're chanting to Milarepa because he's, he's been doing good Dharma work, good meditative work. And uh, basically there's nothing his mind can generate that scares him or makes him tight. And so they, his wisdom reflects that back to him. These Dakinis chant to him on the steep slope of fear and hope, the demons lie awaiting. Right? So it's basically, this is the manifestation of what he's come to understand. When the mind is involved in fear and hope, you're going to find the demons ready to eat you up. But when you're, when your mind doesn't get entangled, with fear and hope, then you're free of the demons, the things that make us tight. And we can just reflect about our own life. You know, in those times when our mind is very much involved in fear and hope, how does that work for us? I mean, honestly, a lot of those times are really tight. And that tightness makes us an ineffective friend and worker and, you know, parent or whatever we do in our life because we're caught up, identified with whatever fear is obsessing our mind or whatever hope is obsessing our mind or combination of fears and hopes, right? And it's entangling. An image the Buddha uses for that entanglement is, um, it happens here to some degree, but in the tropics uh, there are these vines that because of the humid conditions and all the debris on the big hardwood trees in the tropical forests, the vines can start growing right on the branch, and eventually they drop their own roots down. Even if the branch is, you know, 30 feet up, the roots will drop down, and over time, the vine will encircle the entire huge tree, 
So all you'll see, you know, maybe decades later, it will look like a big tree, but it's just the vine that over many years has encircled and dropped more roots down. And these trees, and it's a whole several species, but they can end up, the vine can end up being like a couple city blocks in some tropical forest that get so big. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen them because um, they're not uncommon. I remember the first one I saw, I was visiting Hawaii, and it was on Maui, and it was just this park. You know, it was a beautiful tree, but it's kind of scary because the Buddha uses these encircling vines as an example or as a metaphor for when we get caught in fear and hope, they take over the mind, right? And our mind gets obsessed about our fears and hopes and we're, what we're afraid of leads to other things that we're afraid of and what we're hopeful for. You know, if I hope for this little house near the Lake Superior, you know, then I'm going to hope for a nice deck and a nice hot tub and a nice, you know, it doesn't end. There's always more, it's like the G.I. Joes I had when I was seven, you know, yeah, but then you, you get the different accessories for the G.I. Joe, you know, and the Jeep and the new outfit. and the <laughs> It never ends. And that's the thing with hope and that's the thing with fear. It, they're entangling. That's what that, you know, on the steep slope of fear and hope, the demons lie waiting. It'd be nice to have wisdom energies chanting that as we go about our day. Honey... On the steep slope of fear and hope, the demons lie waiting, you know. You read in that, you're just hanging out, reading the news, and oh, the lottery's at $1.8 billion, or whatever it is, it's somewhere up there. You know, oh, maybe it's my lucky day. <laughs> and then, you know, you, the hope gets triggered, and you're just starting, the mind's already getting entangled with, well, what would I do with that amount of money, you know? Well, the first thing I do is I get away from my friends because they're all going to want it. You know, I mean, it's crazy what we. This is the kind of entangling force these hopes have for us. Or we, you know, we see a really fit person and we think, "Oh, I'm going to start exercising to get really fit." You know, and then that starts to be that entangling force. And then you know, I get a new wardrobe, or um, you know, and then it could be hours where we're just lost in that in that storm that heavy storm. And when we come out of it and we feel like what it feels like in our body energetically, we feel all kind of discombobulated from having been caught in one of those fear storms or greed storms, right? You know that feeling? It's like you, when we've been on the internet too long or watched too many episodes of a program, you know, the mind just gets fried in that. We're not really good for anything. And the interesting thing, and this is uh, something obviously we want to check out for ourselves, is equanimity, you know, we have it as an aspiration, but I was, as I was talking about earlier, we want to understand, like once we have that aspiration for a heart that's balanced, intimate, wide open, sensitive, but that balance, that a capacity to be present, remains even, even among amongst what's uneven. You know, the joy and sorrow, the pain and pleasure, the gain and loss, the praise, the blame, right? That's how the Buddha describes it. What 
And we see that even with some basic present moment awareness, you'll sense that evenness, even among what is uneven, like even as what awareness is being aware of, it might be pleasant, might be a little unpleasant, it might be kind of neutral or boring, but when we get a little momentum, like in a meditation, we'll see that something remains even, the, the mindfulness, the awareness remains steady, even as it knows different objects, some of which are pleasant, some of which are unpleasant, some of which are neutral. But the steadiness of the present moment awareness can have a sense of evenness, even as things change. One of the more famous recent teachings comes from Ajahn Chah about this. Some of you have heard this, I like this a lot. He uses the image of still flowing water. He'd sort of throw that out to students, you know, still flowing water. Have you seen that? Do you know what I mean? You know, and everyone would go, well, I know I've seen still water and I've seen flowing water, but I don't know what you mean by still flowing water, you know. So that was sort of the setup. And, and it's, again, it's a metaphor for the mind, like in our experience, as long as we're alive, possibly, probably even when we pass, the sensitivity of the mind, right? It's, we're going to be sensitive to what's moving. What's moving? Experience moves. The experience through the five senses, right? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, moves ceaselessly. And mental activity moves ceaselessly. And even possibly when we die and our five physical sensitivities aren't working anymore because the body is turning to dust, possibly, you know, I don't know, but it makes sense. The mind kind of has its own trajectory that's not quite the same as the body's trajectory. So maybe the body dies and the mind continues as the mind. So we'll still be sensitive to mental activity, right? Because that's we're sensitive to these six things, right? Buddhism, we call them the six sense gates, sensitive to the five physical senses. But isn't it true that our mind is sensitive to mental activity? In the same way we see sight, we hear sound, we sense thought or other aspects of mental activity, don't we? We're sensitive to mental activity. Anybody not sensitive to the mental activity? Yeah, we're sensitive. We sense it, just like we sense sensation or sense sound or sense sight or smell or taste. So, the practice is to uh, not be afraid of that sensitivity, but to realize there's something that can be even, even with that flow of sense experience, thought, sight, smell, taste, touch, and sound. And that, you see how this is that integrity I was talking about, like when we sit, that's what we're doing, aren't we? We're kind of, like even with our posture, it's like we're saying to ourselves, oh, I'm going to stand up right in the middle of this, or sit up right in the middle of this, or lie down right in the middle of this, or walk right in the middle of this experience. So we can use any posture. Meditation, awareness practice, doesn't depend on sitting posture. It's just convenient. 
because it's relatively comfortable, not too comfortable like the lying down posture where we tend to fall asleep, but not too agitating as standing and walking. So that's as often the easiest training posture to set in a way that's both relaxed and upright. And then we attune to the sensitivity through those six sense gates. We notice thought, we notice sight, smell, taste, touch, sound. Especially like tonight, we did the more open awareness as opposed to using a particular meditation object like the breath, right? So we have more of an open awareness. You can do it different ways, of course. But just using the example of how we, the instructions I gave tonight where we had an open awareness. So whatever's predominant through any of those six sense gates. Oh, thinking mind. These are just thoughts being known. Or hearing. Hearing is being known. Or aching in the knee is being known. Or smell being known. And we, we practice that evenness, that peacefulness, that sense of being right in the middle, sensitive, but in a sense, and it's always hard to use, find perfect words, but in a sense, something remains still, even though our experience, our subjective experience, just a lot of experience being known, sight, sound, beautiful thoughts, painful thoughts, but there's stillness and movement, still flowing water, that's the metaphor. And it's a really useful, you can use that when you sit, you can bring that metaphor from Ajahn Chah, he was a very famous, well-known Thai monk, Buddhist monk, teacher, he died uh, in the 90s, 1990s, so not that long ago. Quite influential for places like Kamagam Meditation Center, we're in that lineage of Ajahn Chah and some other teachers from Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, this early Buddhist tradition, Theravada Buddhist tradition, that common ground is in that lineage. And so he's an important figure for us. And some of our Western teachers studied with Ajahn Chah, a number of them, like Jack Kornfield and Ajahn Sumedho. Um, so there's a real direct influence. And you can use that teaching. Oh yeah, still flowing water. So when I'm sitting, sensing something that remains still, unmoved, silent, space-like, spacious, right? there's something, it's empty, it's like space, but it's, it's beautiful. And it allows everything that's moving to move. It allows every aspect of nature to express itself freely, without friction, you could say, or without mental resistance. So thoughts come and go, sounds come and go, sights come and go, sensations come and go. Even like, because we're not, you know, we're still half-baked practitioners, you know, even our reactivity. So maybe some thought arises, a painful thought, and we flinch. I did that, <laughs> you know, some painful memory. Or maybe we take the bait and we start to stew about that. But eventually, wisdom is going to recognize the still flowing water. Like, there's that drama, and then there's the knowing of that drama. The empty knowing. Like, knowing 
it isn't a thing. There's what's being known, but the knowing itself is a little bit like empty space, like the empty space of the present moment in which this activity that we're sensing right now is arising. But we have to cultivate that sense, because now, you know, like, in a way, a definition of being an ordinary human being or an ignorant human being and not awakened human being is our mind is somewhat obsessed or fixated on the objects that are being known. It, it has an opinion. It likes, it dislikes, it wants to get rid of, it wants to hold on to, it wants to ignore the neutral. But we're sh- shifting from that obsession with the objects of our experience to something, we're learning that there's something else here and now, and then that forever changes our relationship to experience. We're actually able to be more intimate with experience, the body, sound, when we realize the empty nature of the mind, the still, silent, empty nature of the mind. So it's not about escaping the world, It's learning how to be here now. That's what we're doing. How to be with experience. You can't really be with experience when we're, uh, and the mind feels tied or dependent on it. But when the mind has, uh, and it's a funny way to say it, this ground of emptiness, then all of a sudden it can you can live your life being so much more intimate and present and responsive appropriately to the moment. If there's something to do, well, do it. If there's nothing to do in the moment, well, there's nothing to do right now. But in either case, why be tight, right? So we have a little time. Now it would be nice to hear from each other. We have between 15 and 20 minutes. And then, um, so the way we could do it tonight... uh, People in the room, if you don't mind sitting here, because then people online can hear you and see you all hand you the mic for the people online. But if you don't feel like coming up, that's okay. You can use the handheld mic and I'll repeat what you say for the people online. And the people online, you can just unmute yourself. And uh, if you want to raise your digital hand to let me know you want to speak, that's fine. But otherwise, you can just unmute yourself and I'll put the mic on the computer and that way people in the room will be able to hear you. Yeah, so your own experience with equanimity, this balance, and this mystery of something that is still or empty, but because of that, really present, really sensitive. And the responsivity, like doing what needs to be done, that just arises, that just really comes out of that empty presence. So this is the thing, we think, I've got to respond to the moment. I've got to figure out. But actually, you'll see, the more just being present, you'll just do things. Because being present isn't about not doing something. People mistake our sitting practice from passivity. The practice isn't about passivity. The practice is about how to become appropriately responsive in life, freely responsive in life, doing what needs to be done. But we can only, we can't do that from fear and hope. Fear and hope makes everything clunky and tight. 
But emptiness, I mean, you may not like that word, and you can find other words, but a mind that is empty of self-centered drama, that mind can respond nimbly, creatively, beautifully to all the twists and turns of our human lives. So, what have you learned? What questions do you have related to what I've said tonight? Um, yeah, anybody in the room feel like starting? Or Yeah, Anne, you want to come up here? Um, so, I had a very visceral experience walking into Common Ground of a really volatile, shaky energy. And in my perception, it wasn't my energy, but it could have been my reaction. I'm not sure. But I responded to it while we were sitting. I heard the words backwards, and I turned my whole body around so my eyes were going out of the back of my head, and my spinal column was in front of my body, and I, I could kind of feel my hands holding my back like you might hold a child, and I felt the energy of my chakras going out my back, and I spent the whole time in a sort of a cyclone of energy, bringing it to stillness. And I don't know if I just met myself, or I don't know how these things happen, but I literally could, you said have an open meditation, but I had so much, it took so much of me to like bring this energy in me to stillness, that that's all I was doing. And like I say, I don't know if I'm just a freaking weirdo that I that I have these sort of body dreamish kind of things. But what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, everything is always forever something being known, and the and the idea is the idea that experience because sometimes experience will appear very wild or intense or interesting. And sometimes it will appear incredibly boring, like nothing's happened. And each, you know, whatever it is, like what you described, Dan, or something that felt really boring, or something that felt really painful, or something that feels, appears really beautiful, it's just that experience being known. And I felt involved in manipulating. Yeah, and then that is some, that involvement in manipulating is just the next thing being known. So the key is, you know, some, there will be what appears to be a personal response. But in our practice, we're looking, or in a sense, or uh, seeing that personal response as the next thing being known. This feels really personal to me, is being known. Right? So whether we uh, feel like we're struggling to save our life, in our meditative experience, that's what's being known. Or we're just on cruise control and it's so peaceful, that's what's being known. But should I inhibit the fact that I was using my mind and my body to steal energy? Should I should I inhibit that and just let it be as wild as it seemed to be off kilter? See, this is what I was saying too about like maybe the appropriate response arises naturally, like the skillful means of how you're going to work with whatever energies uh, have come up, maybe those skillful means will arise naturally. So when you 
when you are interested in this is being known or this is being felt, when you're interested in that, you might also notice that the appropriate response to the energy happens and it's being known. Because we imagine that there's a me who has to do the skillful means to settle the system down or whatever, right? But it might be that skillful response happens naturally. Like I'm sure some of you are parents, either are at home or here in the room. And, you know, you, we can take that, you know, whether you're a parent or whatever you do that you want to be competent at. A lot of the time we have that point of view that I got to figure out how to be competent at this. But sometimes it's just too hard to do that. And, but you might just find like yourself responding appropriately. And if there's enough awareness, you might realize like, that was really beautiful. It's like I was there, I was present, and I somehow said the right thing at the right time in the right way. But it wasn't me trying to be skillful. It was just, I, I was present, I was really there, and the appropriate response or the refraining from doing the wrong thing happened naturally. Because it was, because the stillness allowed for nature to take care of nature's business. So in a sense, the energetic storm that you described, Dan, that's nature's business. And the resolution of nature's storm is nature's business too. And, and, and of course, the awareness is also nature. So when I'm not saying that like we're the awareness and the storm or the energy that energies that you felt were not me, there's something else. No, it's all nature. We're just understanding these two aspects of nature. There's the knowing and there's the what's being known. And we let the what's being known take care of itself and we let the knowing take care of itself. But we're living now as a normal or ignorant human being unaware of the knowing. So that's why we're doing the training to bring balance because balance requires that there's a sensitivity to the knowing, not just to the known. When all we know is the known, then our relationship to the known is one of attachment, identification, entanglement, and things get painful for us. Yeah, thanks for getting us started, Anne. Appreciate your comments. Yeah, it looks like somebody online. Let me get the mic there so everybody in the room can hear you. One sec. Okay, go ahead and unmute yourself, Kim. Hi there. Um, yeah, interesting thing going on. I'm going through some medical stuff and uh, was also have also been picking up Pema Children's book talking about this exact topic of hope and fear at the same time. And um, the medical stuff is not resolving and it's an interesting way to live. But on Monday, literally, I saw a medical provider that uh, both things came out of their mouth at the same time. They said, well, you've been dealing this for a while and you've effectively for months failed all conventional treatments, but I've got this other thing we can try. And I walked away, and of course I attached to the hope right away, right? And then as I'm talking to a couple people in my life, I'm like, you know what? 
I'm not going to hold my breath. We'll find out. We'll see. He doesn't really know because I've been down that road before for months, right? And, but also what's true is, yes, uh, I'm afraid that things won't improve. It's possible. But I've been down that road too, and that's not a fun place to sit and think about. So I'm like, well, okay. It is what it is. I'm not going to hold my breath for this hopeful thing, and I'm not going to dwell on the, this could go on for two years or more, because we really don't know. So what's interesting is that people in my life want me to feel better and love me dearly, uh, and it's hard to sit and watch this, watch me go through this, but they're kind of like, why aren't you more excited? I'm like, because we'll see. And I just have today. And I'll go back to my routines and slowly plot away as best I can. And there's kind of the, it's just funny. This came up, this hope and fear thing came up again. And I'm like, ah, that's what this is then. You know, right? Kind of caught whispers of it with Pema children with that hope, fear. And it's like, well, where do I want to spend my energy? Well, just being and looking for peace and spaciousness and taking care of what I can take care of. And noticing when I'm grasping on to either the bad news or the good news. So thank you for listening. Yeah, really beautiful testimonial, Kim. I appreciate your willingness to share and good luck with all of that. But, but it's just so nice. I mean, we get when we hear someone like Kim talk how earthy this wisdom is. It's really practical, right? And, uh, and it, it actually can be disturbing a little to our friends, like, because in our normal kind of cultural vibe, we expect people to get worked up and intense. That's sort of the expectation. So if when someone's going through, you know, what we would consider a crisis or something big, we expect their mind to be intense about it. And so, but when somebody has more balance, like we'll see, or who knows, you know, and that's, there are teachers who will even recommend that you just silently in your mind, just after everything you hear from someone else or everything you're, you yourself say, you just tag on, who knows? Or we'll see. Or not sure. Yeah. These are like little mantras just to keep it loose. Because like one way the Buddha talks about ignorance is the mind's dependency on fixed views. It's not a problem to have ideas or views, but to fix on, to get dependent on. Like even in terms of political divisiveness, bad. This person's bad. This is a bad politician, right? Well, yeah, sometimes when I hear what this person thinks, that's an unskillful thought. That's an unskillful way. But they're not bad in a permanent fixed way. Because then we might see them loving their daughter in another moment and realize, oh, that's good. That's not bad. You know? They might be good in some ways and ignorant in other ways. And it's not a fixed thing. Nothing's fixed. Things are always moving. And we don't want to put anybody in a box. But we don't want to be ignorant. I mean, they might be unskillful and we might need to stop them from doing stuff that are harming others, right? So it doesn't mean we give up, you know, getting involved. 
Other thoughts about this experience of, especially like Kim, sharing your own experience of where you've seen some powerful equanimity showing up, even if just for moments. Anything else come to mind here in the room or online? In the Zoom? In the Zoom room. Where have you seen equanimity in your life showing up? I can do a quick one, Mark. Oh, please. Let me get the mic there. One sec. Okay, go for it. Hi, everyone. I'm Rosalie. Uh, I have an adult daughter with a disability that makes every day have a lot of things that you have to help with. And uh, I was just saying to my husband, I, boy, there's a little panic every day, isn't there? And I was thinking the value there is that the steep slope of fear and hope is at a remove. And so you really see it as, oh, can I do something or not? And, and you don't get as tight. So I was just reflecting tonight that it's kind of a training. You get to watch the steep slope from a remove recognize the whole process you you can't go into every panic with this or you just would not survive and uh so what a cool experience to go oh it's the same process i do internally (laughs) yeah beautiful rosalie thank you you for sharing that's a nice way nice place rather Mm -hmm. for we for all of us to end tonight and uh yeah just encouraging people to be on the lookout for those places of equanimity like we heard from Rosalie and from Kim in your own lives. Because recognizing equanimity as that, it's really the fruit of hard-earned wisdom, like paying attention to life naturally leads to more equanimity. But when we recognize it and, and recognize it as, oh, this is the way, this is what the heart really wants, that that powerful balance no matter the conditions of my life. To be able to show up and just something needs to be done to do it. If there's nothing to do, there's nothing to do, but don't need to lose the balance. Don't need to lose the intimacy. If there's something to do, you do that with intimacy, with presence. If there's nothing to do, you're okay with the nothing to do, with intimacy and balance. That, that Really, we start to sense, oh yeah, that is the way to live. So may it be so. Thanks for coming, everyone. I'll be here again next Wednesday. Shelley is out teaching the Young Adult Retreat at Insight Meditation Center, our society in uh, Barrie, Massachusetts, right in the middle of Massachusetts, one of our grandmother institutions in this lineage of Buddhism here in the West that we're part of. And uh, But then Shelley will be back later in August for the rest of that month. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Sensing that still flowing water. Thanks everyone. So nice to be together. I'll be doing a day-long retreat on Saturday. You can join in in person or online. And then the following Saturday, the first Saturday in August, um, Shelley will be leading the half-day retreat in the afternoon. So two retreats coming up. You can join in and take care.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.